Welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is a podcast about global health and human rights. Now, this set of episodes is produced in partnership with the Bay Area Global Health Alliance, a group of businesses, biotech and technology, local and international NGOs, all committed to improving the health and the lives of people around the world. You can find out more about the Bay Area Global Health Alliance at their website, www.bayareaglobalhealth.org. Well, in this episode, we meet Jeff Sturchio, the Chief Executive Officer of Rabin Martin, a global health strategy and advocacy agency. Jeff has had a sterling career in global health. He led uh, access to ab- access to medicine efforts at the pharmaceutical company Merck, and he went on to be the Chief Executive Officer of the Global Health Council. Jeff, in my opinion, is one of the most wise and encyclopedic minds in the fight against pandemics. Jeff, welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. Well, it's great to be with you. I got to say, this is, uh, Jeff, you are a guest I have wanted to have on the show for a very long time. I remember the conversations, some of them heated, uh, that you and I used to have in the WHO cafe in uh, the (laughs) WHO headquarters in Geneva. Um, And here we are um, on either side of the uh, United States connected by technology in 2020. And and I suppose largely caused by the double whammy of COVID-19 and the the Black Lives Matter um, Mm -hmm. movement. And I just wonder, to kick this off, how do you feel these two sort of seismic events are transforming the way you're thinking about global mm-hmm. health and human rights? Well, uh, you know, first, uh, again, thank you for, uh, for inviting me to join you for this conversation. You know, it's interesting. I, I was, um, the last 10 days have really been uh, uh, remarkable in the way in which the incident in Minneapolis with George Floyd has sort of, uh, you know, um, sparked uh, all kinds of action across the United States and across the world as people are protesting, rightly protesting, uh, the uh, incidents of police brutality and how it's really illuminated longstanding questions of structural racism in the U.S. And I think, and and I, I'd like to draw a connection between that and and uh, and global health because. Uh, and the the route through that is understanding social determinants of health. So you know where people live, learn, work, and play, uh, the environment they live in, where they're housed. Uh, as I said, uh, unemployment, uh, economic inequality; those are all aspects of what um, create uh, vulnerability in health and lead to health inequities around the world. So um, uh, you know, Sandro Galea, <clears throat> excuse me, who's the dean of the Boston University School of Public Health. I wrote a book recently called Well, which looks at uh, the impact of understanding social determinants on how we think about health. And, you know, he points out that the conditions that produce poor health are also the forces that create a world that shapes health. And those forces include not just the ones I mentioned, uh, but also, uh, you know, underlying forces like racism, sexism, homophobia, economic inequality. So if we're really going to uh, help people who are vulnerable and um, and don't have access to healthcare resources because of these kinds of of underlying forces that structure the world we live in, uh, we really have to work on those as well because they're inextricably linked to health equity. So you know what, Sandro, uh, if I can just quote um, a couple of lines in in this book, he says, "Creating a healthier world means creating a more just alignment of the conditions that shape health." Without the core aim of justice, we cannot effectively pursue health. So I think that um, you know addressing questions like the ones that have been brought up in the last ten days around structural racism and the need to deal with that are also of a piece with understanding what needs to be done to improve health around the world, which is what I spend most of my time thinking about and working on. So, so I think it's it's very relevant to what we're trying to do more broadly in global health, and it's also relevant to the COVID-19 epidemic. I mean, just to give you an example, in the U.S., um, in a, a recent study that was um, coordinated by AMFAR, uh, they found that Black Americans have been, uh, have been affected as one-third of the COVID-19 deaths in the U.S., but the Black population is only 13% of the U.S. population. So that's two and a half times uh, the level of risk of dying of COVID-19. 
And they've also found that one-fifth of the counties in the U.S., all of which are, uh, that is, one-fifth of the counties in the U.S. are disproportionately black in terms of population distribution, uh, but those account for nearly half of all the cases and more than half of all the deaths. So you can see how um, you know, these issues that people are protesting are also relevant for understanding what we need to do about health. Uh, and and I, been, I think that's an important point. It's been really point. interesting to see how this has become sort of a global wave. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned the, the research on the impact of COVID on African-American communities. The research in the United Kingdom is looking at, you know, is, is demonstrating that as well for um, Black and um, South Asian communities who mm -hmm. are disproportionately uh, affected. And, you know, and at the end of the day, this just points more than ever uh, for folks like you and me who've been committed to global solidarity that... Um, you know, if if a virus is spreading out of control, four thousand miles away from your from your hometown or your your fort in Washington D.C. with <laughs> with uh, yeah. uh, with fences and unmarked uh, militiamen around them, it, you haven't dealt with it. I mean, what I what one of the other reasons I really wanted to get you on the show is that I think you have um, an incredible. Um, clear-sighted and sort of inspired thinking around things. I've always deeply appreciated that. And, and I think in part, uh, my thinking is that this comes from your early upbringing, your, your, your academic background and indeed your uh, activist background. Could you share a bit about that? Uh, sure. I, well, first, it's kind of you to say that you think I have a, uh, you know, a clear-eyed view of, of uh, these issues and uh, the way to think about them. But uh, you know, maybe part of it does have to do with my academic background. I, um, uh, I was, uh, another way of putting it is everything I know about global health has been on, on the job training because I, uh, I was a history major as an undergraduate at Princeton. Um, I discovered the history of science when I was a freshman at Princeton and I'd started off to be a chemist, uh, and switched to history of science. And then I went off and got a PhD in the history and sociology of science at the University of Pennsylvania. So I've always been interested in, um, you know, in looking at issues of science, technology, and medicine for, through an historical lens. And you know, I was a college professor for uh, after I left uh, the university with my new PhD, uh, and I stayed in the academic world um, uh, for a number of years before. Uh, in fact, uh, I often describe myself as a recovering academic. So it's, uh, but. Uh, I went into the business world uh, in 1988. I joined AT&T, Bell Labs. I stayed there for a little over a year and then went to Merck, where I spent 20 years. And that's when, you know, uh, your, our listeners may be interested to know, that's when you and I met because we were working on HIV AIDS, uh, you know, from different, uh, different perspectives, but we were thrown together on the same issues and, uh, uh, and have, you know, and have worked together ever since. But it was... Um, you know, I remember once uh, when I first went to Merck, uh, the, I was talking to one of the senior executives at some dinner, and he he asked me, um, "Are you a writer or are you a um, what was the other thing he said? Or are you a policy guy?" But he, you know, but he had this uh, view of the world that you you know there were only certain roles that people could play, and he knew I wasn't a scientist, and he knew uh, I wasn't uh, you know an engineer, uh, so he had a limited set of categories to put me in, but. What was great about the nearly 20 years I spent at Merck was that, um, you know, certainly with HIV and AIDS, I was thrown right in. Um, you know, it's been 25 years now since I first started to work on, on HIV. Uh, but I was thrown right into a, a team that was trying to figure out um, how to bring Crixivan uh, in Dinavir to the market. Uh, and we started, uh, the way that I got into that work was I was part of a small team that engaged with uh, some key players in the HIV uh, treatment information community. You know, and like I Marty think that's Dillon. and that's where I really got to, to 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 meet you. And I think in those days, way way back when, I was working for one of your competitors, what was mm. then called Glaxo Welcome. And and I guess the question I've always wanted to ask you is, uh, uh, why are the humanities so essential to the sciences? It it has always struck me that w we've been playing this role of bringing what goes on in the quiet of an enclosed laboratory to the general mm. public and, and almost um, the vice versa, bringing what's going on in the general public into the thinking that goes on to research and development. Yeah, no, that's true. And I, 
Well, you know, it's a good thing that scientists are focused on their lab bench because that's how they come up with the bright ideas and the new products that, you know, when we were in the pharmaceutical industry, we were trying to play a small role in bringing those to more people around the world to ensure that uh, you know, that uh, if they had a life-threatening condition, they could live through it or uh, they could, um, you know, uh, really get uh, uh, life-extending uh, therapies if it was a, a chronic disease. Um, but it's, uh, you know, and it's a rare scientist who actually can uh, bridge that gap and explain what he or she has been doing to a broader public. But, I, you know, another way of looking at it, and maybe it's just um, given the roles we had as well as the kind of um, backgrounds that we brought to it, but, uh, you know, what I, what I found in my, uh, my career is that uh, large corporations are some of the most insular institutions on the planet. And, uh, you know, despite what they say, and, you know, if you just think of the slogans of some large pharmaceutical companies, they claim to be all about helping patients, putting patients first. Uh, but what most people inside those companies spend their time thinking about is, uh, when uh, can I get this PowerPoint presentation ready for my boss the day after tomorrow? Um, you know, I've got to go to a meeting of this task force this afternoon, and where's the agenda? And, you know, but it's all inwardly focused, and, and it has to do just with the day-to-day -day business of, of doing the work that is required to get you know, new HIV medicines out or new cancer medicines out. Or you know, if you're in another company, you know, uh, making sure you have the snazziest sneakers to sell to, the, to consumers. Uh, so in the roles that I had when I was at Merck, I was really put in a position where I had to think carefully about what do different publics expect from a company like ours? And how can we use the vast resources we had and the, the kinds of capabilities in, you know, in, the, uh, in the personalities of our scientists and our clinicians, uh, how can we use those to do more good in the world? Uh, and so it was, uh, you know, it, and it was helpful to have that kind of role. You played a similar role at your company, too, uh, and, and also at, at another one that you worked for. Uh, and I think that you know, we need more of that, uh, you know, that kind of translation so that we understand what's happening uh, in the outside world and how that affects both how companies go about their work, but also um, how they understand the expectations of others. You know, I started to say a few minutes ago that, um, you know, we, I was first introduced to the world of HIV and AIDS um, when I was, you know, one of a large team that was working on Indinavir. And my colleagues at the time, John Dorley and Linda Distelrath, um, really had started this in engagement with the HIV community. And the interesting thing was that there were lots of people inside the company, some of them at very senior levels, who thought this was a bad idea. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this is the age of, uh, you know, in the mid-90s, this is ACT UP and, you know, uh, and uh, lots of demonstrations. And, it, you know, it wasn't so many years since Larry Kramer and Peter Staley and lots of other people had tried to close down the FDA and, you know, uh, demonstrations in the New York stock market, die-ins all over the place. So there were executives who were really wary about this engagement. But in the end, uh, it became clear that that engagement was critical both to the development of our uh, clinical program, because this group of treatment information activists like Jules Levin and um, uh, Marty Delaney and a number of others who met with us almost on a monthly basis together with the senior scientists, you know, raised really important and sensible questions about, were we thinking about this? And, you know, I mean, clinicians have a tendency to uh, underplay uh, adverse experiences, but for them, and some of them were already on early HIV medicines like DDI and DDC and AZT, you know, for them, uh, you know, peripheral neuropathy wasn't just um, jargon. You know, it meant that their hand, their fingers and toes were numb, and it was oh, really it was it, it was, was terrible. day and life issues. Yeah, and and I think the um, what's interested me so much about that time was that we were this intersection in a change of a fundamental change of philosophy that your your customers were no longer doctors, your customers actually were the end users, were patients. And 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 I think, originally, probably for for very good moral reasons, the idea that pharmaceutical companies shouldn't interact with patients made sense. Maybe mm -hmm. in the nineteen fifties, but by the nineteen nineties, an informed, um, assertive patient community, and I, I've I've realised it wasn't just HIV. It's been happening across a range mm. of of diseases. That that model just didn't work anymore. And and um, 
you, you know, you described the industry as being very, very inward. Um, and I think the other thing that I, I experienced that that even with the best will in the world, it can be very, very slow to change, even if it wants to change. Um, and so the idea that you would bring in patients and speak about patients, um, uh, that the, the experiences that patients have, and actually engage them in design of clinical trials and right into the R&D process was something that was becoming very revolutionary. Yeah. Yeah, no, and it's true. And, and since then, you know, in the last 25 years, you've seen that that approach or that, um, uh, you know, the method of engaging with the communities who are most directly affected has become widespread in, you know, whether it's people with asthma, people living with diabetes, people living with cancer, uh, you know, engaging with the, the relevant patient communities is now just part of how the industry tries to do business. I think there are, um, you know, in my, uh, my opinion, uh, the what's missing now that was very much present in the 90s when we, we first started speaking with uh, with treatment advocates and others in the HIV community is that there is such a um, a complex web of compliance that's now been spun around relationships between uh, individual companies and the the patient communities that I think something something is lost. Uh, yeah. you know, nobody nobody disagrees that this has to be done according to a, a clear set of rules. Uh, and you know, in most cases I can think of, those rules have been well observed. Uh, but I think that because uh, companies now, um, you know, find it basically all of these um, uh, compliance issues that have been raised in recent years have really made it difficult for companies to get the full benefit of engaging with patients. And that's and, and we should just sort of clarify what those compliance requirements are. And I think they, I guess they come from some of the more notable, uh, notorious experience, say with the opioid crisis mm -hmm. and others that, you know, you can't, you can't be seen to be influencing or bribing um, patients and doctors, doctor groups. But, yeah. you know, Jeff, I, you beat me to it by <laughs> having a quote. I've, I've, I've got one written up specially for you. Um, and, and it sort of, I think, speaks to the moment that we're in. And as you'd expect from me, it's from Aldous Huxley, mm -hmm. um, from, from uh, one of the collections of essays. Um, and the quote is, that men do not learn very much from the lessons of history is the most important of all the lessons of history. And, and, and so we're sort of getting into this conversation, you know, essentially recollecting what we did. It is really amazing to me that we've done such a sloppy job in documenting what happened, what was achieved and mm -hmm. what was, uh, and indeed what the challenges were. And I think the area that, that really struck uh, me in my collaboration with you when you were at Merck, I was briefly then at Glaxo Welcome and then at UNAIDS. That's, mm. that's really where I... Um, interacted with you um, working for Peter Piot, then the executive director of UNAIDS, is that as we looked at the companies that were coming in to talk to us about improving access to medicines, and, and actually that might be not the best way of describing it, in you know collaborating in improving access to care generally and, and looking at the, the core competences that they could bring, you, you, you undoubtedly had a range of people um, and approaches. And I would, I would say that on one hand, there was you, there was your boss at the time, Perwald Olsen, uh, and the chief executive officer, uh, Regil Martin. Mm -hmm. and, and there was a sense there of, you know, you, you guys dreamed big, but you had sort of a step-by-step -step plan on how to get there. And then on the other hand, you the other extreme you had folks who who really believed in the primacy of intellectual property that that ip wasn't a tool in order to improve health it was the thing that you needed to def to defend at all costs mm. and in a short period of time um you your colleagues i i think a really seminal hysteric uh, hysterical historical <laughs> moment two might be interchangeable i admit but um you, you, you know, uh, the idea that there was one global price and that there shouldn't be differential mm. pricing, um, that was a, 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 a sort of a holy sacrament that, that, that got, um, mm. got defeated. And of course, the other one was working with generics companies. And, and there was such movement in the early 2000s. 
some of it, I think, that movement has not sort of adequately uh, reflected the the contributions made by brand named companies themselves. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered what your sense of that moment in history was. Well, it was um, you know it was uh, you know I, we think back to that now. I'm thinking around you know the year 2000 2001 when uh, when things really came to a head. Um, you know there was uh, remember in 1997. Uh, the pharmaceutical industry saw that it was, uh, in its wisdom, decided to sue Nelson Mandela over how the South African government treated intellectual property and pharmaceutical products. Uh, and by 2000, uh, it was clear that you know this was killing their reputation around the world, and something had to be done. Uh, and so, you know, together with many others, you and many others, um, uh, you know, I was involved in uh, in helping to um, find a way to change the industry's position and really have a much more realistic approach to these issues. Because it turned out, uh, after all, that when uh, companies implemented differential pricing, when they started to look at what had to be done practically to improve access to care and treatment for people living with HIV in African countries, the sky didn't fall in. You know, it's the intellectual property system didn't crumble around them. And, and conversely, um, it became clear that uh, even when uh, the WTO made it possible for countries to implement TRIPS flexibilities and issue compulsory licenses, that didn't solve the problem either, uh, because there were so many other dimensions of uh, how to ensure access to medicines for uh, for people who uh, at that time still didn't have access. So, so I think what was critical was finding a way to work together uh, across um, geographic boundaries, across disciplinary boundaries, and across sectoral boundaries. I mean, in other words, you needed to have um, a real collaboration of everybody who had uh, uh, resources and expertise to add to the solution, uh, solutions to this, this set of problems. And it was, um, you know, I think what we, what I remember some of the things that were really um, interesting at the time. I mean, first of all, the and you'll recall this too when the accelerating access initiative was started in 2000 there really hadn't been uh, uh very good communication among un agencies who had an interest in this problem and among the companies mm. um you know and and of course there hadn't been dialogue with the community either and i think one of the things that came out of that and what we've learned over the last 20 years is that you know you have to have that kind of dialogue because you know, these are classic examples of what Kofi Annan used to call um, problems without passports. And, yeah. you know, they're so complex uh, and so daunting that if you just stay in traditional silos and don't work together, uh, it's hard to find uh, what he also called solutions without borders. Now, you so, just talked about the Accelerating Access Initiative, which was essentially a group of uh, pharmaceutical companies interested in HIV working with the UN to try and Try and move the uh, move the needle forward. Mm -hmm. As you look back at that time, who are the sort of um, who who influenced you? Who sort of uh, helped drive your thinking in those days? Well, it, it was a long uh, a long process. I mean, first of all, uh, as I said earlier, uh, you know, I was uh, really um, impressed and affected by the dialogue that we were having with leaders in the HIV community. Um, you know, it just it made it clear to me that uh, you had to look at this this really complex and and uh, you know and existential issue through the eyes of others who were more directly affected, um, and you know that was hard to do from where I sat in a large multinational pharmaceutical company. But through that mechanism, that started that kind of dialogue, um, and then that led us, uh, you know, when as you said before, we were trying to do more with uh, because we knew that. Uh, you know, that this medicine in Dinavir was going to have an important role. In fact, in 1996, uh, a year or so later, uh, when it was first introduced, you know, you'll recall at the Vancouver AIDS conference, it was, uh, you know, it was revolutionary that triple oh, combination yes. antiretroviral therapy was having such an immediate impact on people who were uh, were living with HIV and, in fact, had uh, come come to the uh, the stage where they had uh, AIDS. And uh, you know, and all of a sudden, in a matter of months, if they were able to get access to that therapy, it was, uh, you know, we they used to talk about the Lazarus effect. Mm. So that was one thing. The other was, you know, in, and it was probably not until um, a couple of years later, uh, when we really, uh, when at Merck at least, when we realized that we had to do something to get this new medicine, not just to people in the U.S. and Western Europe, but 
you know, then as now, most of the people who were um, who were uh, affected lived in Africa, and so we had to do something to get this this medicine to Africa. So that's when we reached out to uh, to Peter and UNAIDS in Geneva and started to, uh, you know, Joss Perians was also part mm-hmm. of that discussion. Bernard Shortlander. So you know, it was it was getting to know more from the perspective of those of you who were working at the center of the institutional response, at least the multilateral institutional response. Yeah, and and not to forget the uh, the late Julia Cleves, who was of course. who was very much part of that. Yeah, but you absolutely. know, as as I was trying to sort of meld all these different viewpoints together, um, I mean, you were a huge uh, huge influence on on me. Um, I'd say, and I, and I wouldn't really sort of say from the other side, but of course there were a group of activists um, and lawyers who who were very dismissive of the intellectual property mm. um, laws and, uh, and and frameworks. But um, Ellen Tahoon, who went on to be uh, the head of the medicines patent pool for a while, uh, I, I believe she recently actually got an honour from the uh, Kingdom of the Netherlands for her uh, for her work. In, in access to medicines. But I remember meeting with her just as the medicines patent pool was being formed. And she was thinking, oh, I'm going to have a really tough time convincing Ben of what we're trying to do. Yeah. And I went in there thinking, you know, she's just, you know, I, she and I are not going to have any areas of, um, of, of, uh, of, of agreement at all. And to our surprise, I would say almost to our horror, we found ourselves agreeing that yes, the idea of of having an organised way of providing technology transfer from a uh, mm. a uh, uh, you know the the originator company and then making it available through a series of uh, of licences made perfect sense. So you know that era for me, whether it was uh, expertise from industry um, and as you know as well as you and the people at Merck, I'd sort of include Paul Stoffel's. Uh, mm-hmm. Who was then at Tebow Tech and then went on to play such a key role in J and J. So, so there was him, um, there was you, then there were people like Ellen, and not to forget, um, uh, you know, people like Kate Thompson, who then went on to the Global Fund, mm-hmm. who was precisely one of those people whose lives had been saved after 1996 mm-hmm. by triple therapy, but who made it their mission to say, well, if I have this, everybody needs to needs to have mm-hmm. it. One of the other things that you and I did in the early to mid-2000s was get heavily involved in the business response to AIDS more generally. Mm-hmm. And, and we were seeing this, this rapid transformation from sort of old-school philanthropy. Let's just send a couple of Land Rovers to, uh, to, to, to Kenya and slap our logo on them. Mm-hmm. Um, through to sort of uh, more corporate responsibility, and 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 I think it's still evolving still into you know good corporate business practice, but but as you look at the stuff that happened then, the the mobilisation of the broader business community, mm-hmm. um, you, you know this was an area where you and I would would sometimes get into some interesting conversations because, uh, you know, we had to do what we could to mobilise. Uh, the energy industry, the mm. um, the manufacturing industries, heavy industry, and and you know, I, I let me put the question to you again now. I mean, do you think it was all bullshit, or do you think we were actually doing something? Well, yeah, no, I think uh, no, I don't think it was all bullshit because um, I think that uh, you know the kind of dialogue that uh, the GBC uh, helped to. To catalyze and the work and, that and you GBC did. there is the Global Business Coalition yeah. on HIV/AIDS, and now it's GBC Health with a with a right. broader mandate. But you know, but the dialogue that you catalyzed, you and your colleagues catalyzed, um, the leadership that you showed in persuading many companies, uh, you know, banks and energy companies and and others who didn't have a direct, who didn't believe initially they had a direct interest in health, um, was really important because, you know, as I said before, these kinds of uh, Problems without passports, or you know what uh, sociologists call wicked problems, really need all the relevant expertise and resources that we can muster to solve. And let's face it, uh, it became clear that HIV really was everybody's business. Uh, it 
you know, um, I remember the, well, think for instance, a, a great example is the work that Brian Brink did when he was chief medical officer at Anglo-American. You know, here's a company you would think had no interest in HIV AIDS, except for the fact that a large proportion of its workforce in mines in Southern Africa was HIV positive, and they were having trouble maintaining the productivity of their mines, which is a core element of their business. So, you know, but Brian uh, sort of single-handedly tackled that problem and forced the company to take this seriously, to look at um, what they could do for the miners and their families and the communities in which they operated to prevent and, and treat uh, HIV, uh, and later um, realized that uh, uh, HIV-TB co-infection was a continuing problem, and so they also worked on, on TB. So that's, a, that's sort of the paradigm case of why this is, even for a mining company, these kinds of health issues are really important. Um, and I think that that notion uh, has become, uh, just as we were talking before about how relationships with patient communities has now become a standard practice within the industry as a result of a lot of the work that was done on HIV. Um, I think that the examples, uh, some of the salient examples from when the Global Business Coalition on HIV AIDS started working with a wide range of companies um, has become, uh, has also become much more widespread. I mean, let's face it, uh, for instance, uh, Peter Sands, who's now um, uh, the head of the Global Fund or the executive director of the Global Fund, uh, was came out of Standard Chartered Bank, and Standard Chartered uh, was one of the companies that was very active in the GBC some years oh, ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. Standard Chartered was one of the first business uh, banking businesses to mm -hmm. join. Now, there's a huge figure as we talk about the Global Business Coalition and the business response to AIDS, who sort of came into this like a whirlwind in <laughs> in 2001. <laughs> and, and you remember that Peter Piot assigned me to him to be his executive director of the Global Business Coalition. And I'm thinking of the late Ambassador Richard Holbrook. Yeah. And, you know, you were immensely helpful to me as I was pulling my hair out in those days. Holbrook had this desire to test everybody. Just just get people mm -hmm. tested and the problem will go away. And, and uh, I, I remember, uh, and actually it might have been over some slightly stronger drinks than coffee or tea, <laughs> Um, you know, trying to find ways of of, of sort of managing that expectation. So I, I, it's a question I've always been dying to ask you, um, Jeff. D do you think Holbrook helped or hindered the cause? I, well, I, you know, I, uh, I think he, he definitely helped because as it happens, um, he wasn't wrong that testing was critical. Um, and it was also important for him to bring this to corporate leaders and get them to see that it was something that they should consider supporting. Because as you know, as it as we we know now, looking back on those years, um, it's the fact that uh, testing, you know, um, point of care testing became widespread for detecting whether people had HIV infection. That became a critical uh, component of an effective response to the HIV epidemic. You know, if we just switch back to where we started, thinking about COVID nineteen, you know, if you just think about the disastrous way in which testing was rolled out for COVID nineteen infection. Uh, you know, we just don't have the not the knowledge. You know what became one of the principles in the HIV world of uh, to uh, really mount an effective response was know your epidemic, and without testing, you couldn't know the epidemic. You couldn't know which uh, key populations were affected. You couldn't know where transmission was happening, uh, and it was hard to organize a response that made efficient use of the available resources. But the big and difference with with HIV back then is that we suddenly had something we could offer. No longer mm. were we saying to people, oh, you've just got to use a condom and you know, cross your legs and hope you say, st stay safe. We actually had treatment. And, mm -hmm. and so I think um, you know, the real challenge for us was to, was to connect the, uh, the sort of the public health imperative around, treat around testing, yeah, know your epidemic, with being able to offer something in the context of a disease with incredible stigma and discrimination. Yeah. Um, so that's what really made it, I think, for, for, for me yeah. then. Yeah, no, and, and so, you know, just staying with that analogy for a minute, we're in the pre-anti-retro, you know, the pre-ART um, uh, phase of the COVID-19 pandemic, yeah. because, you know, uh, we're starting to see, like with remdesivir from uh, Gilead, that there are some treatments that appear to be useful. Uh, and we're hopeful that we're going to have an, uh, a COVID-19 vaccine sometime within the next year, let's just say. 
you know, that statement alone is controversial because there's some who say it's a matter of months as opposed to a matter of years. Um, and let's hope that uh, those who think it's sooner rather than later are correct, uh, because that'll be hugely important. Um, but, you know, we do still with COVID-19, you know, we have uh, a public health um, a set of public health countermeasures that have actually been effective in some countries at curtailing the spread of the epidemic. You know, hand washing, uh, using testing, uh, contact tracing people who, are, who we know are positive, uh, uh, isolation of those people from people who aren't yet positive, as well as social distancing and, you know, and, uh, uh, and uh, sharing accurate information about the, the spread of the disease. So and those have made a big difference in some countries and in other countries that haven't implemented those, you might call it combination prevention. Uh, it, uh, you know, the disease has been uh, uh, running more or less unimpeded. And, you know, that's a big problem. But so there are things we can do. But you're absolutely right that, um, you know, that having uh, effective therapies really changed the game for, for HIV. Now, in the second part of the 2000s, you and I were heavily involved in the setting up of uh, and, and sort of implementation of of what I believe the uh, the UK activist and sexual uh, reproductive health uh, advocate Robin Gorner called the global health architecture, which was this mm. rash of new and existing um, multilateral uh, agencies, whether it was the Global Fund uh, against AIDS, TB, and malaria, UNITAID. There was uh, UNAIDS, which of course had come in 1996. We had the uh, the US PEPFAR program, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, and then within the UN family, we had, you know, WHO, UNICEF, UNDP, and and I, you know, that that's a lot of that's a lot that's an alphabet soup. That's a lot of uh, um, yeah. acronyms going on there, and I. Uh, I remember you and I having conversations about whether it made sense for there to be so many organizations. Um, and you teasing me that I was trying to find a logic to justify the existence of what were essentially uh, fiefdoms. Mm. Um, and, and so, Jeff, did that, did that global health infrastructure make sense then? Does it make sense now? Yeah, well, um, I think the, in a way, it was almost inevitable because. Uh, one of the things we haven't talked about much is politics, but uh, you know, even at the level of multilateral organizations and the UN and uh, what appears to be just a technical question, um, how do we learn uh, how to deal with the, the healthcare problems that uh, affect people around the world? Uh, and what are the technical things we need to know, you know, and the normative guidance on that to do the best job that we can with available resources? That can't be divorced from the politics of these multilateral organizations. So so what had happened by 2000 or so is, you know, WHO, which is a member state organization, uh, was getting to the point where on certain key issues, you just could not get consensus. And so, it, and, and also because WHO was then as now, uh, had, uh, was uh, strained by the limited resources they had available to essentially deal with the entire health agenda around the world. Um, that just exacerbated the kind of political tensions there were within the member states about what WHO's best role should be. And so I think in that context, it made a lot of sense to have a Gavi that could really focus on immunization that was, uh, you know, uh, killing too many children before the age of five. Mm. It made sense to have a UNAIDS because, you know, and, and you know, we know from uh, the book by uh, Mike Merson and, uh, and Eric, uh, you know, the early story of the separation of, of UN AIDS from the WHO's global program on AIDS that, you know, there were, it was beset by, or WHO was beset by these kinds of political challenges in addressing HIV and AIDS, not least because of the stigma and discrimination around it that you mentioned before. But, you know, it made sense for WHO to um, cede uh, the coordinating function to UN AIDS, which Still, you know, most people don't realize, you know this because you, you worked at, at UNAIDS, but um, most people don't realize that the rationale for UNAIDS was to coordinate all of the UN agencies' activities around HIV and AIDS. It, um, it's called herding cats on heat. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a better description of what the reality was like. 
But you know, and UNAIDS has has made a, a tremendous contribution to uh, you know to to really um, fighting back against the epidemic uh, over the past twenty almost twenty five years now. Um, and the same, you know, you could go through each of these specialized agencies. The Global Fund was to put the spotlight on the need for sustainable financing for fighting AIDS, TB, and malaria, and it was able to do that in a way because if the Global Fund uh, has only that role then it doesn't have to fight everybody else with a vested interest within WHO to get more money for AIDS, TB, and malaria. So, so I think that they were, um, you know, they were innovations that were fit for purpose at the time and have done a lot of good. But I think you're, you know, you ask a good question. So we're, here we are in 2020, uh, 2020 uh, we're beset with the, you know, the largest health crisis in a century with the, uh, the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, and is this global health architecture now fit for purpose for dealing with a global challenge like that? Um, and I think that, you know, one of the things to keep in mind, uh, another thing to keep in mind about the history of the last 20 years as the global health architecture has evolved is that, you know, some of the things that we've learned are that, um, you know, multi-sectoral action is better than not having multi-sectoral action because, you know, it enables... Um, governments to bring in the multilateral organizations and communities who are directly affected and uh, the private sector as well. So you can actually have uh, a much more systematic um, uh, approach to these issues. Um, it's also part of a trend that's, um, or it reflects a trend in global development more generally. Uh, it used to be, uh, you know, when the WHO was created, um, uh, there were uh, the first world and the third world, or, you mm. know, and then it became developed countries and developing countries. And but it was always this sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, donor beneficiary relationship. So there was a, a certain hierarchy in the relationship that now, as a result of HIV/AIDS and and the work that's been done through Gavi and and the Global Fund, you know, that also plays into this broader trend in looking at countries that are not uh, as economically developed as uh, you know as the OECD as partners in development, not that one is a beneficiary and one is a donor. Um, and that perspective, I think, is important as we head forward. And then finally, uh, you know, those agencies uh, that we talked about, Gavi and UNAIDS and the Global Fund and, and others, show the need for effective global coordination. So I think what's most critical is that, and, and this is the role that had been allocated to WHO back in the 40s and it continued to play, is you need to have an agency that can coordinate all of these resources that is prepared to deal with emerging health crises that can, uh, you know, step in and bring all of the resources together in a way that deals effectively with those Oh, abs those absolutely. Crises. And I think as we look forward into the next decade, the coordination is going to be the key. Mm. Whether it's WHO, I, I, I don't know. I think they play an invaluable role in setting normative guidance, particularly mm. for emerging economies to, to set health priorities. I think yeah. that, that has been you know, truly one of the Bretton Woods achievements, um, you know, in the last, in the last, what, 60, 70 years. Yeah. But then I got to ask you, the US withdrawing its support from the WHO, how much of a good idea was that? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I just don't understand it. It's crazy. It's self-defeating. Uh, I mean, first of all, uh, you know, how is it better for the US not to be part of the organization that brings the global community together to address a health crisis like COVID-19, uh, you know, because it just means that we've seen already, and, and let me, not to put too fine a point on it, uh, I don't think the U.S. response to COVID-19, certainly at the level of the administration, has been anything to write home about. Uh, you know, there have been failures in testing, failures in, uh, you know, coordinating production of PPEs and ventilators. Uh, you know, we're still having fights over how much testing should be done and who's going to coordinate it. Uh, and then, you know, it was uh, at the center, it made this false dichotomy between economic recovery and the public health problems, you know, which I just think has uh, is one reason that you see the uh, the outbreak or the pandemic having gotten to the point that it has in the U.S. So in that context, you know, why would we want to divorce ourselves from others who are trying to solve this problem on a global level? Because at the end of the day, it... Uh, you know, Ken Frazier gave an interesting interview last week, um, uh, in part in in response to um, and, and Ken Frazier, what the CEO of Merck, the current CEO right. of Merck. Yeah, and so and what Ken said uh, with respect to the COVID epidemic is, until all of us are safe, none of us are safe. Yeah, uh, and I think he's absolutely right. 
So it's you know that's why I said that uh, that uh, President Trump's decision to uh, pull support from from WHO and let's not go into you know what the alleged reasons were, uh, but it uh, first of all it shows uh, again the point I made before that you can't uh, separate politics from pandemic response, um, but at the end of the day it's not in the U.S. national interest because. You know, uh, as long as there's COVID-19 anywhere in the world, there's still a possibility that's going to have an impact on the U.S. So we should be doing everything we can to work together with other countries to solve this problem. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, 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 it makes no sense to me, and I'll not get into it at this, at this point. <laughs> but, but moving forward now, Jeff, you're the CEO of Rabin Martin, which is a, um, a health uh, policy strategy and um communications agency. I've had mm -hmm. the privilege of working with it, uh, being one of its clients in, in the past. What, what do you do there? What, what are your priorities? Well, what we try to do um, in a nutshell is bring together private sector capabilities with unmet public health needs. Uh, and so we, uh, a lot of our work involves uh, helping to set up partnerships so that, uh, that our clients, who tend to be companies, can work with civil society and with governments and with multilateral organizations to do more than they ever thought they could do uh, to address access to medicines and to really uh, help improve uh, health systems around the world and uh, to try to just shape um, the global health environment in a way that more people can get uh, access to care and treatment and, uh, and live you know, healthier and longer lives. So we're really focused on underserved populations, whether in the US or anywhere else in the world. A lot of our work uh, is uh, centered in sub-Saharan Africa and in India, but we also work on HIV in the southeastern U.S., uh, for instance, and the way in which uh, stigma, discrimination, health inequalities uh, affect the, uh, the response to HIV. So, for instance, now we're, one of the issues that's coming up is uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis and how that can be used more systematically to prevent HIV infection in the first place. Um, and we're, you know, we're very interested in where we started this interview when I was talking about social determinants of health and the way in which, uh, you know, fundamentally uh, you have to think about issues of social justice to understand the underlying causes of inequity that lead to health disparities. So it's those disparities that we focus on and we try to help our clients do what they can to overcome those disparities. You know, Jeff, another area that you and I have had worked on, I mean, we we, we never really had the the science never quite delivered the AIDS vaccine, but we were all mm. interested in the preparation work, vaccine preparation work. Um, you know, the way we're going to get out of COVID-19 is going to be around uh, one, possibly more vaccines that are going to have to have billions and billions of doses. Mm -hmm. How do you think we're going to be able to deliver this? Well, it, uh, you know, it goes back to a theme that we talked about earlier, which is uh, it's going to require partnerships at, at every level. Uh, because, you know, first of all, uh, just again, uh, you know, what's unprecedented about the COVID pandemic uh, or the coronavirus pandemic is that the speed and the scope of its spread uh, is, you know, people say, well, you know, the uh, 1918 uh, uh, flu pandemic uh, killed many more people. That's true. But it was it wasn't a global pandemic, uh, you know, because it only it, there were many countries that weren't affected by it. Um, so obviously, it had a greater impact in those countries that were affected. But you know, here because of globalization in the intervening century, uh, you know, nobody uh, can escape the impact of of COVID nineteen, and that's become clear just in the last few months. Uh, and so uh, it's going to require, uh, and it is already requiring a lot of uh, partnerships at the national and, and global level to address this. Uh, but the same thing is going to be true once we do find an effective, a safe and effective vaccine. And I think that, uh, you know, it's been remarkable to see how quickly um, uh, the entire research community, both uh, public and private, has responded to this. You know, we have, you know, within uh, just a couple of months of, uh, of having identified the genomic sequence of, uh, of the coronavirus itself, you know, we had uh, something like 100 different vaccines in development, and there were already um, about 300 plus clinical trials of different medicines to see if they'd be useful against coronavirus. Um, and so that's great. And, and also there have been uh, specific partnerships set up 
to accelerate the development of diagnostics, um, therapeutics, and vaccines. The Gates Foundation was quick out of the box with their accelerator that involved uh, um, you know, MasterCard and Dell and a bunch of pharmaceutical companies to see if they could quickly find something that would work. Uh, there was the NIH has the active collaboration, which again involves many uh, government scientific agencies along with uh, 15 or 16 biopharmaceutical companies to accelerate the progress toward diagnostics and new medicines and a vaccine. Um, the EU has put their Innovative Medicines Initiative uh, resources at the service of finding COVID um, solutions. And of course, the WHO is leading this, uh, you know, um, a multilateral uh, uh, approach to, uh, to trying to do the same thing, to accelerate uh, solutions so that we can apply them as quickly as possible. I'm really and interested in your thoughts on the European initiative, mm -hmm. which was a, a sort of a, a, a great big raffle ticket, if you like, a great big bingo party uh, for CEPI. Uh, the mm. uh, the Norwegian-based yeah. um, um, vaccine preparedness group, um, and, and and do you see uh, a, a sort of a, 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 a sort of a, a rise of Europeans filling the void left perhaps by American leadership mm. in in pushing vaccine um, research into COVID? Yeah, well, I think it's you know the reason I mentioned those four is that it's really a fairly global. Um, effort to catalyze uh, um, research and development of new tools against COVID-19. Um, and the Europeans obviously are playing their part. And, uh, you know, it was encouraging to see that uh, Ursula von der Leyen, mm. the head of the European Commission, led that pledging conference at the beginning of May. So that was a, a good sign. And European countries have certainly been stepping up because, you know, we know they've been uh, uh, directly affected in, in serious ways. Um, but I think what, you know, this is going to... Um, get back to a problem that uh, we've discussed about the need for coordination, because, you know, they're all trying to do the same thing and they're all working with the same companies and they're, you know, uh, and they're all tracking the same virus. So, you know, we have to find a way to make sure that, uh, you know, the EU efforts aren't duplicating efforts that are happening in the U.S. and vice, you know, vice versa. And, and also, let's not forget that uh, there are, uh, you know, skills and resources in Africa and Southeast Asia that should be part of this search as yeah, well. Absolutely. You know, and it's, um, uh, and so, uh, you know, not only will, uh, you know, clinical trials will have to be held in other parts of the world just to make sure that, um, that whatever vaccines are successful, um, you know, there aren't some esoteric uh, adverse experiences that only affect certain kinds of populations, uh, you know, certain populations. Uh, but also, you know, those additional uh, skills and that additional creativity will help us come up with better solutions. But the point I was going to make uh, about that is so so we're seeing, uh, you know, this rapid um, uh, investment in finding solutions. CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, uh, is a good example. I mean, they are they have made early investments in some of the vaccines and uh, other uh, projects that are going on, uh, and that will have an important catalytic effect. Uh, and actually, more money came in for CEPI at the uh, Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, or GAVI, uh, replenishment just a couple of days ago. So those are all encouraging signs. But let's say, uh, you know, to use a somewhat, um, I don't mean to sound flippant, but, you know, what happens if the dog catches the car? You know, mm. what if we do have a new COVID-19 vaccine uh, and we realize that it's actually going to be useful for about 7 billion people? So but there has never been a vaccine that's been distributed to 7 billion people in, uh, you know, in a, in, a, uh, in a finite period of time. So the question then becomes, what do you have to do to ensure global access to an, a safe and effective vaccine that can actually help, uh, if not stop the epidemic in its tracks, at least um, you know, really um, slow it down significantly and make it less deadly for people who do, um, who do catch COVID-19 infections? It's and going to force on us a uh, a solidarity, a pandemic solidarity that mm -hmm. that we had perhaps uh, predicted twenty years ago was needed, but it's going to have to be implemented at rapid pace. Yeah. Uh, back to your point that you know, not sorting the not sorting out infections in Southeast Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. Is going to have a huge impact on whether we, as a, a global society, end up dealing with the uh, with the pandemic. Yeah. There, there was one other thing I wanted to um, to, to raise with you, and it's a, a comment that Jonathan Quick, who we used to know at the WHO, 
um, he's been talking about the need for pandemics literacy, something mm. that essentially has to inform pretty much every aspect of our policy and budgeting over the next few years. Mm. You know, the idea that that COVID may well be the pandemic we were a fear a fearful of, uh, but there will be others, and yeah. so. Uh, it, it seems to me that there's going to have to be an utter transformation in the way we um, think about, incentivize, and budget for uh, you know this impact of globalization, this impact of the clash of humanity and yeah. and, and climate. Yeah, no, I, uh, you're absolutely right, Ben. And I, um, you know, one thing that's certain in this time of coronavirus is that it's not the last pandemic that we will face. So, uh, so that, uh, you know, that preparedness, the focus on preparedness is absolutely critical. You know what, um, and Peter Piat put this well in an interview a couple of months ago, he said, you know, the time to build a fire department is not when your house is on fire. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that's, uh, interestingly enough, Bill Fagey, who is a former CDC director, uh, who wrote a memoir about, uh, his role in smallpox eradication called the book house on fire. So, um, you know, and, so, you know, the, the difference between what we've seen with COVID-19 so far and smallpox eradication in the 1970s um, is that in the 1970s, that campaign to, uh, uh, to eliminate smallpox actually had all the elements that we've been talking about that need to be uh, part of our approach to COVID-19. You know, the coordination, the uh, partnerships, and, you know, I, I won't repeat all of them, but it it's an interesting historical analogy. And just to come back briefly to, um, you know, what, what are we going to do once we have a COVID vaccine? Because, you know, what I think the manufacturers or the, uh, the research, uh, researchers and manufacturers are going to be uh, then worrying about global access have to do is, number one, um, you know, they have to plan for it from the beginning. So it's, you know, it's no good to say... Um, well, we've got this vaccine. We have a certain number of doses. We'll take care of the U.S., the U.K., and uh, the EU first, and then we'll worry about the rest of the world. No. I mean, you know, we learned the hard way in HIV and AIDS that that's just not acceptable to the people who are living with this disease and, and who rightly feel that, uh, you know, their lives are just as important as lives in the global north. Um, the second is that I, th I hope we'll also learn the lesson that Companies shouldn't remain in their shell, you know, be isolated in the way that I was talking about earlier, but that they should really reach out to governments, to communities who are affected, uh, to civil society generally, and get their ideas on what would be equitable ways of distributing the vaccine as we have it. Uh, and also, uh, you know, we've seen already that AstraZeneca, for instance, is uh, thinking about this because at the Gavi replenishment a few days ago, they announced a deal with the Serum Institute of India to make another billion doses mm. of the vaccine they're working on with Oxford University, if it turns out to be safe and effective. But they're, they're doing that now so that they can begin to scale up to distribute it more broadly uh, when it uh, is proven to be safe and effective rather than starting then. They're taking the risk now. But they're also thinking about, uh, you know, what about India? What about Africa? And how are we going to make sure that people there have access to a vaccine? Uh, and I think the, you know, the last point I just want to emphasize is, you know, we've seen, and, and this is a thread that's run through our conversation, but, you know, we have to look at this through an equity lens and realize that, you know, and with COVID, it's, it's so much more important because nobody's um, uh, immune from it. Uh, I mean, some are now having uh, lived through the experience of having COVID-19, but basically nation, no nation is immune most people on the planet are still at risk of, of COVID-19 infection. Uh, and if we have uh, a vaccine uh, that is safe and effective, uh, it's only right to make sure that we're, we find ways to get it to as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. Um, and then that comes back to the point you made about pandemics uh, literacy, because you know, one of the things that, uh, that we're, we've got to start thinking about more seriously is how to manage expectations of a global population about how and when they'll get access to a vaccine or to new drugs. And part of the problem here is that hardly anybody really knows how COVID uh, you know, attacks the body. Right. right? So they're just basic yeah. issues about the pathophysiology of coronavirus that, I mean, scientists are only just learning now, but we've got to find ways to translate that knowledge to the broad population uh, so that they understand how to protect themselves. And 
you know, we've seen many examples over the last couple of weeks as economies begin to open up where people are acting as if they're, uh, they're immune uh, yeah. and, you know, won't be affected. But, uh, you know, th- this virus doesn't care whether your governor in the U.S. decides that you can now go to phase two and reopen non-essential businesses. Uh, it's just looking for opportunities to infect other humans. And it does that pretty efficiently. I think so this is the this is the perhaps the great tragedy of of the of the modern era of this modern era that we mm-hmm. have so reduced ad absurdum our uh, attention span for news and for information that the idea of us having to fly an aeroplane while we are still building it that there will need to be some long term attention that we as the general public have to pay to this is something that's going to be very hard, but I think very good for us as a society yeah. to embrace. Yeah, yeah and, it, and it's all the more important because, uh, you know, the experts tell us that uh, COVID may not be a pandemic forever, but it's likely to become an endemic disease, just yeah. like seasonal flu. So it's all the more important for people to understand what they can do to protect themselves from infection. And and then the other uh, part of uh, of pandemics literacy is um, most people have, don't have a clue how vaccines are manufactured. And, you know, and so in trying to help uh, provide reasonable expectations for what the general pop- population or the general public can expect, um, I think that kind of education is important too, just so they understand that it's a complex process, that it doesn't always go perfectly, that it, you know, when people tell them when you can't get, you know, depending on which expert you talk to or which politician you talk to, you get a wide range of estimates for when these vaccines are going to be available. And it's not because they're trying, you know, they're lying. It's not because they're trying to dissemble. It's because it's a highly contingent process and it's unpredictable. Uh, and you just have to be, uh, you have to be uh, patient uh, because, uh Eventually, we'll get there, but it may not be a linear path. And right, and and perhaps one of the seminal moments in the history of COVID will be a meeting that a certain president of the United States had with a group of industry leaders about vaccine development. And you're going to offer me a vaccine in a year. You're going to offer me a vaccine in six mm. months. Any advances on that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Talk about talk about the need to uh, to educate and prepare. Exactly. But let's hope we have those problems soon because, you know, uh, I mean, obviously it's, uh, it would be great if one of the companies that's in the race right now does come up with a, um, a new vaccine as soon as possible. So it's a question we're asking absolutely uh, everybody who, who, who comes on the show. Um, how are you staying safe and sane during this period of lockdown? And I, I can I can see immediately there's one thing that you're not doing, which is shaving. And the uh, <laughs> the beard looks very good, by the way, very distinguished. Oh, thank but, you. Yeah. yeah. So what's your what's your shelter in place strategy? Yeah. Well, um, well, I keep busy, obviously. Um, but uh, no, this I started this beard on March 9th, the the day that I started uh, working from home. So I'll I'll probably shave it when uh, in the distant future when we start going back to the office. Um, but I, you know, obviously uh, I spend a lot of time uh, on uh, Zoom calls uh, every day, just you know, uh, engaging with our clients, with my my team, uh, and try um, uh, the other thing I do, which. Uh, I mean, this is probably more information than anybody needs, but I've always tried to leave at least one day a week where I don't work. So I, you know, uh, and I'm actually violating that now because usually I take Saturdays off. But so so what do you do? I, I imagine you read, you are a voracious yeah. collector of books, um, yeah. but uh, anything you've been binge watching on television? Oh, yeah. Well, I have a weakness for uh, Scandinavian noir uh, series, TV series, you know. I mean, things like Wallander, and uh, I just started watching uh, Rebecca Martinson, which is uh, Asa Larson is the the author. So that's one thing I do. Um, but I do read a lot. In fact, I'm now, um, I'm about uh, a third of the way through the second volume of Charles Moore's biography of Margaret Thatcher. And, you know, I found, uh, I mean, at the time that Thatcher was in power, um, I can't say that I was a big fan of hers, but reading this book is fascinating because it really tells you the way that uh, it gives you an inside look uh, on, in how uh, government actually operates and how 
uh, how Thatcher um, wielded the power that she had. So, so those are the kinds of things I like to read. Well, Jeff, we should let you get on to enjoy your one day off of, of not working. And I, for a minute, cannot believe that's 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 ever been achieved. But Jeff, thank you so much. Uh, one, for everything that you have uh, you do and for what you have done. Uh, and thank you so much for giving us the time uh, on this episode on the show. So really appreciate it. Sure. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Ben. And uh, maybe we can do this again sometime. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed the show. Our thanks to Jeff Sturchio. Thanks also to Eric Espera, our director from Newsdoc Media. And thanks also to you. If you have any suggestions or comments about this show or any other show, please don't hesitate to contact us. You can find us at Facebook and Twitter at Shot Arm Podcast. And of course, you can find us wherever you download your podcasts. Have a healthy week and a safe week. Thank you.